Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting Loxdala Saga on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And you uh, you changed the intro again. I did. You did it last time, too. I, you know, I, I, I know we're kind of far along on our journey here, but it's always seemed sort of user-unfriendly that we start every episode the exact same way without letting people know what the episode's about. I mean, we always let the people know what the episode's about. Uh, there are titles. Eventually. Uh, the episodes each have titles that tells them yes. they've been listening. They know. Yes, uh, but, but you people know. are driving. Uh-huh. It's dangerous to make them check their screens to find out what episode is on. I don't think they care that much. I Hey, if you're listening to this in the car, honk so Andy knows you're out there. Yeah. Oh, flawless reasoning. I can I can hear it now. Actually, uh, what I hear is my dog barking in the background. But uh, There you go. Uh, <laughs> also good. See, he's listening too. Uh, so while we're wasting our and everyone else's time, uh, you, sir, just got back from a trip to Iceland. How'd it go? Well, it went excellent. Uh, we were able to take advantage of the long days and the sunlit nights to do a tremendous amount while we were there. A lot of driving, but also a lot of a lot of hanging out and hiking and just enjoying. So good you're, just, you're just rubbing it in, aren't you? Mm-hmm. I will have you know that my trip in February was delightfully dark and filled with hailstorms. So let's not <laughs> pretend you had all the luck, sir. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you are basically a cave troll. I think you'd be right at home with that. <laughs> Thanks for that. Uh, so what did you get up to on the trip? This, this is more uh, pleasure than business, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. All pleasure, no business. Uh, mm-hmm. My wife and I, uh, we spent about 10 days on and around the Ring Road, enjoying all the beauty that Iceland has to offer. Uh, although, John, I have to say, that first day where it just mm-hmm. never stopped raining, it hit me pretty hard once we settled <laughs> down and built our tent at Utlid. By that time, both my hiking boots and my sneakers were soaked through, and I had already used like three of my seven pairs of socks that I had brought. Uh, and I was freezing. And you cold. actually pitched a tent in this circumstance? Of course. Yeah. Well, I didn't. We didn't. weren't staying at hotels. We were we were camping I, every night. So I mean, you no could always sleep in the car that night. One could, but that's not how we do things. All no, right. that's not no. how we do. All right. Well, well yeah. So like, we we crawled in the tent, and I made the mistake of looking at the weather forecast. And uh, at that point, my exhausted brain imagined that every single day that uh, we would have would be exactly like this one with the driving rain. And I'm thinking, like, we spent all this money to get here. I wanted to share this country with my wife. Um, and here's what it's going to be. So it was not comfortable that first night. But uh, fortunately, uh, Wendy suggested that we go hang out in the campground kitchen area that was up by the restaurant uh, where we could relax and dry out a bit, which was a great suggestion because we found there a pile of abandoned camp gear, including dry hiking boots that were in my size, the only pair of boots that were there, and two mummy bags oh, that we This could story put- ends with you stealing somebody's boots, doesn't it? I didn't steal anybody's boots. They were left there. As someone was probably like flying out the next day and they, you know, I don't know how long they had been there, but they were there and there were, <laughs> yeah. there were two mummy bags uh, uh, so that we had extra insulation. So we took those two. Oh, it was great. So yeah, thank you. If, if you're if you're uh, looking for your camping equipment in Iceland right now, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll send you Andy's email. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I left the boots. You know, I used them and then I left them mm-hmm. uh, for, for the next person to uh, nice. to take uh, at another campground, of course, because my, my boots did eventually uh, dry out. But I do. Mm-hmm. I want to thank whoever left all that stuff at uh, Utlith, <laughs> uh, whoever piled it up. Uh, you guys saved me. You really saved me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. yeah. See. I was expecting to be jealous, and now all you're doing is complaining about the rains, and now I feel a lot better well, look, about the dude, trip. That was just the first day. After that, it was it was literally smooth sailing. We woke up, and the sky was blue. We went to Thingvetler. We we traveled up to Borgarnes. We hung out there. 
we had a, a great time. And so, like, if, if, if listeners were following, I posted quick summaries with some highlights and uh, pictures and things like that from each day. Very short, but, uh, you know, what I could do in the in the breezy nights. Um, but so, yeah, if you check our social media from the last uh, month or so, you should see a bunch of that stuff. Um, so hopefully you saw that. But it's not requisite. No, not requisite at all. But uh, as you'd expect, it was an amazing trip. I highly recommend people yeah. go there. Um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, but, John, you and I need to talk because while oh. I was there... I did put some serious thought into what a saga thing tour or even a series of tours might look like. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to work on making that happen. Uh huh. I mean, maybe, look, maybe you're on board. I, I'm absolutely on board. As long as I don't have to do anything with a computer, I'm on board. So you basically just want to show up. Correct. Uh, well, I hope but I'm pay, willing to I'll, do that. I hope you'll pay the fee. That's all I'm hoping. <laughs> as long as I can do it. With paper money and not to use a computer, yes. Uh, <laughs> wow, not even a credit card or anything? <laughs> I like my folding money, Andy. Okay, well, anyway, so that's that. Um, I'm hoping maybe in the next uh, two years or so we'll have something pretty cool. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, there you go. Uh, so, lovely. Uh, I'm glad you're back. Um, and uh, we are back to cover, what, our sixth episode of yes. our Troll Through Lockstall Saga, the... Story of pretty much all of Western Iceland in the 10th and early 11th century. Mm-hmm. And we are fully stuck into the main narrative at this point. It's it's about to really happen. Yep. Uh, we've begun setting the stage. We've already met Kjartan Olofsson and Bolli Thorlikson. And in this episode, we'll be getting to know Gudrun Osustotter, the third and maybe the most important figure in this main narrative. Yes, yes. But uh, before we can do that, we have to talk about... Wait, 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 wait. What are you, what are you doing? I'm talking about what happened. No, no, no. The last time thing is my thing. It's not anybody's thing. I just use a pre-recorded thing. So just go ahead and pretend to say it. (laughs) But we'll use the same thing we always use. All right. Last time on Saga Thing. Olaf Peacock, the young Icelandic aristocrat with princely Irish blood, continues his winning ways as an up-and-comer on the Icelandic scene. Olaf's newly married to Thorger, the daughter of the legendary warrior Eil Scott the Grimson, and the pair prove a formidable force in Laxadol High Society. But Olaf nearly comes a cropper when he buys a haunted valley from Thorkel Scarf. Fortunately, a timely warning from a coward of a cowherd allows Olaf to outfox the revenant of Killerhrop. Olaf's father, Hoskild, uses a deathbed trick to ensure a handsome inheritance for his illegitimate son. And Olaf repays the favor by throwing a massive funeral bash for dear old dead old dad. The shindig brings Olaf ever greater repute and honor among the moneyed classes. Everything's beer and skittles for our man Olaf. But as Dame Fortune showers her attentions on Olaf, Thorleik Hoskildsson, outshone by his half-brother Olaf's open-handed ways, is sucking the bitter lemons of jealousy. To smooth relations in the family, Olaf fosters Thorleik's son, Botli, providing a bosom childhood chum for Olaf's own son, Kjartan. Soon Olaf turns his good fortune into flashy swagger, indulging a taste for the finer things, including a brand new gathering hall made from real Norwegian wood. But Norway also brings a hint of trouble, as the pushy German Thunder, an unwelcome Norwegian companion, invites himself aboard Olaf's ship. In Iceland, Geirman turns his attention to Olaf's daughter, Thurid, and a generous gift to Thorid's mother Thorgood seals the deal on a quickie marriage between them. But Thorid and German turn out to be a match made in hell. When German attempts to walk out on his wife, Thorid sneaks aboard his ship to steal his beloved sword, Legbiter, and leave their slightly less beloved baby daughter, Groa, in its place. 
I still can't believe she did that. <laughs> Germont and Little Grower both die in a shipwreck, but not before... So who's laughing now? <laughs> but not before cursing the sword to kill one of Thurid's siblings. We're looking at you, young Kjartan. As we turn to the central story of our saga, can Thurid's family escape the curse of Legbiter? And who's that lovely young lady dreaming of her future over in Breithafjord? It's time to meet the final member of our central story, this time in Luxtala Saga, chapters 31 to 36. An awful lot happened last time. That was a lengthy one. Yeah, and we're not letting up. Uh, this episode isn't just about setting up our tragic triangle of romantic leads. It's, it's also about foreboding. So much foreboding. And this first section is going to seem a little disjointed. Uh-huh. Yeah, but that's only because it is a little disjointed. Well, yeah, but... Just just keep in mind that the unifying theme here is the build-up to the central conflict and tragedy of the saga. Mm-hmm. As disjointed as everything seems, it's essentially a montage of short narrative signposts pointing the way to the tragic end of the story. We got the ball rolling on this at the very end of our last episode, when Thurid Olaf's daughter stole the sword Legbiter from her husband Girman Thunder. Girman cursed her and the sword, saying it would be the death of the dearest member of her family. Yes, that is foreboding. And if memory serves, she gives the sword to her foster brother, Botley Thorlikson. Memory does indeed serve. Uh, but Legbiter is only the tip of the foreshadowing iceberg. Today's episode is really going to start racking up the portents, auguries, and adumbrations. Auguries and adumbrations? That sounds like uh, something we need sound effects for. Well, I mean, I think it has to be. I mean, foreshadowing. Oh, wait a second. Wait a second. The sound effect isn't queued up. I don't even know what the sound effect's going to be yet. Give oh, me sorry. What, uh, what kind of sound effect are we thinking here, John? Um, I'm thinking some kind of a melodramatic uh, piano moment, like from a silent film. Okay. Foreshadowing. Oh, no. I, like, bum, bum, bum. Okay. Let's try it again. Foreshadowing. Yeah, that's the one. Fine, but uh, we shouldn't give the wrong impression. This saga isn't relying too much on contrivances. You mean what? I mean, it's not bending the narrative to fit things like dreams and predictions. It's it's more organic. <laughs> the story okay. that's developing will happen because of the personalities involved, and oh, we're going to get to know these personalities. Sure, yeah. No, the, the predictive elements themselves are a standard genre contrivance. Right? Sagas use predictions and prophecies as a way to create narrative symmetry and to build suspense. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, this author is really deploying every trick in the foreshadowing book. As we'll see right away. <laughs> All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is part of why we stopped in the middle of a chapter at the end of our last episode. Yep. Uh, because uh, there's a little bit of foreshadowing about to happen. Uh, so are you... Portenti. Portenti, yes. Uh, are, you, uh, are you ready, John? Can we return to Salmon River and catch up with our story? Sure. Hit the button we haven't got. And we're off. Part 18. Just a little icebreaker to get us started. Ah, icebreaker. I think we need to. I think we need to rearrange this chapter a bit. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I mean, we are in control. We can do whatever we want. We are the new sure. authors of this text. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like you said, things are going to feel a little disjointed in this section, especially if you read it the way it's written. So mm-hmm. how do you how do you want to start? Uh, should we introduce the new folks? That's always a nice way to start. Sure. Yeah, that's that's a pretty standard start to one of our episodes anyway. Let's uh mm-hmm. let's get to know people. Um oh, okay. 
Uh, well, we are introduced to two new households at this point. Uh, the first is led by Oswif Helgeson. Uh, Oswif is a great-grandson of Bjorn the Easterner, and Bjorn was the brother of Auth the Deep-Minded, if you remember, and he is a major player in uh, Erpiki Saga. So, mm-hmm. uh, Oswif is a third cousin of the descendants of Auth, who lost her comb in Comsness, Right. And that's kind of where all this is taking place. Yeah, this family is just everywhere in Braithefjord. Yeah. Well, it, it does help that they keep having big families. Olsvif uh, mm-hmm. marries Thordis, the daughter of uh, Theodolf the Short. And the two of them have six children. Five sons named Ospak, Helgi, uh, Vandrath, Thorath, and uh, Thorolf. And uh, a daughter named Gudrun. And she's the one that we're going to want to remember. Ladies and gentlemen, a big hand for Gudrun Oswald's daughter. Ha! Now, I know a lot of people who are fans of Laxdala have been waiting for Gudrun to appear. And if you don't know this saga well, well, Gudrun is going to be a major figure. Arguably, she is the major figure of this saga from this point forward. And the usual critical position is that this saga exists as a vehicle for telling Gudrun's story. Yeah. Uh, our old friend Jonas Christensen says... Lockstaller's narrative divides into two main parts. In the first part, the author gathers his material together and weaves various strands, which will contrib- contribute to the design of the second major part. When Gudrun Oswestotter appears on the scene, however, everything begins to revolve around her, and the various strands start to come together. Yeah, yeah, I like this idea of how the strands of a story are coming together kind of like a tapestry. But the more I think about how the sagas are constructed, the more I'm reminded of the interlaced design of early medieval art. Like, you know, that that old article, the interlaced structure of Beowulf. Mm -hmm. See how each of the narrative threads is at one of the same time its own carefully crafted strand, but also part of a larger interwoven pattern of motifs. Um, But yeah. I I, I accept that somewhat tortured analogy. It wasn't uh, very good, but, you know, (laughs) know, it is getting late here already. We just started. (laughs) <laughs> uh, anyway, if we could if we could play dueling Christiansons though for a moment <laughs> he also says that Guthrin's part of the triumvirate along with Kjartan Olafsson and uh, Botli Thordekson that the central incidents of the saga are built around he says mm-hmm. it is only when the Foster brothers Kjartan and Botli are introduced alongside Guthrin that the narrative finds the theme which will engross it until the end of the story yeah he's quite taken with her uh, oh, in, a, in a different piece he writes that Gudrun stands lofty above all the other women of the saga. Once on the stage, the center of it is her only place. If she had been a man, the saga would probably have been named after her. I mean, that is very likely true. And that does lead to a, yeah. an interesting question. What's up with the, you know, we know that we get the names from later centuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, why why throw in shade on, on Gudrun? This should be her saga. <laughs> I mean... In in the defense of the saga being called uh, Luxdal instead, we are into the chapter thirty area now, uh, <laughs> and we're only just introducing her. I mean, there's okay. a lot else going on in this saga. Okay, all right, but just devil's advocate uh, here. Um, yeah, how f- I'm, I'm sliding away from my desk here to pull it out. That's I'm great just- audio. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious, how far into Ale Saga does Ale Scott Grimson pop up? I know, I know, it's quite well, a long way. Just just bear with me. Just I believe one it's in moment. the 20s somewhere. On page 54 is the first mention. Page 54? In the Penguin edition. It's uh, chapter 31. <laughs> 31. Chapter 31 right, is when go. he is born. Mm-hmm. So uh, what chapter are we well, on? Uh, 31. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Uh, but 
in fairness to her, Guthrie just got here and she's a young kid right now. Let's not put too much pressure on her. We'll give her a little <laughs> okay. bit of time before we ask her to carry the story. All right, fine, fine. Uh, I mean, A.L. Scott the Grimson makes a hell of an entrance in the uh, yeah, chapter 30. I mean, he's, he's a hard-drinking poet by the time he's three. <laughs> he's yeah. a- Let's see if Gudrun can uh, carry his water. Hmm. That's right. No. No, it's it's just exciting to finally have her in the narrative and to be getting to the centerpiece of this of this saga. Uh, but anyway, her dad, Ozvif, he finds his property becoming too small for all of his livestock and for the needs of his household. And it's not just Ozvif. Uh, Thordis and their kids at the farm uh, also need more space. So besides the usual assortment of farmhands, shepherds, and other folks, uh, there's also a cousin of Olsweef's named uh, Thorhatla Chatterbox. Um, I assume you'll tell us about Chatterbox when we get to the nickname section. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she lives at Olsweef's farm with her two sons, Old and Stain. Um, and these boys work the farm, of course. Oh, yeah, these guys. Uh, Old and Stain aren't popular with most people due to their habit of talking too much and too freely. But they're close friends of the five Osvesons, and all of them support each other in any troubles. Mm-hmm. But they this are is a real power more... block. Right, right. But uh, it's worth noting they are more mouths to feed. And mm-hmm. um, Oswif begins expanding his operation, buying up the farm of a neighbor to allow his herds more grazing room and trying to generally find enough space for everyone and enough food for everyone. Right. And, I mean, it's all working out, right? Everything's going mm-hmm. great for Oswif and his family. But elsewhere in the area is a, we'll say, less ideally situated household. Okay. A woman named Alv lives at Sauerbeer with her husband, Thord Ingunnarsson, and her two brothers, Thorkel the Pup and Knut. It's, a, it's not a happy marriage. Uh, Thord's a successful farmer, but he's from a poor background. He, uh, he married Alv to get her dowry and family wealth. But she's not impressed with him, and he regards her as, quote, not good-looking nor exceptional in other ways. <laughs> Ooh, mediocrity burn. Eh, I'm not sure Thor is a surprise either. Uh, <laughs> well, anyway, this household is. is going... Well, right. This household is going to be important in a little while, but for now, they provide a nice counterpoint to Oswif and Thordis and their successful and happy home. All right, uh, so that's the new folks. we got kind of like basically two main farms we're interested in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so where are we in this in the actual story? Well, we left off with the death of German Thunder in a shipwreck. That's right. I remember that. Uh, a lot of shipwrecks in this saga. It's a convenient way yeah. of getting rid there's of people. A, yeah, there's a lot of treacherous waters around Bredefjord. <laughs> well, Germund and his crew uh, crashed into some rocks on the Norwegian coast, actually. Uh, technically, <laughs> he's a Norwegian companion to Olaf Peacock, and now he's gone. Hmm. I'm not sure we can count him since no one killed him. I mean, uh, the sea gods killed him. But, there you go. All right. Anyway, we could stretch a point. Uh, I think we could stretch a point and argue that his wife Thurid killed him by stealing his lucky sword. I'm not saying that's a good argument, but it's an argument. Okay. I mean, she also had a friend of hers drill holes in the bottom of German's ship. <laughs> not his ship. In the bottom of the um, in the bottom of the ship's boat. Not not the ship itself. Right. Right. No. It's yeah. In the but in the essentially what amounts to the escape boat, the life yeah. raft. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I mean, if anybody, if anybody's trying to uh, abandon ship and get into the ship's boat and right. get to shore, it's not going to work. <laughs> Thanks to Thorid, but uh, but yeah. So following the death of Germund, his his widow Thorid Olaf's daughter doesn't make much of a pretense of being grief stricken at the loss of her husband and infant daughter. As we said last time, even before Germund's death, she returns to her father's house and gives leg biter to her foster brother 
Botley Thorlikson. Foreboding. It's not really clear where or if she even learns about German's shipwreck and death. I'm, she I must mean, hear about it, though, right? Yeah, I mean, she must find out about it sometime, right? Uh, she sort of considers herself divorced. That's true, uh, yeah. So I suppose widow isn't the right term for her. Uh, but anyway, she isn't single for long. Uh, she marries a second time to a wealthy man named Gudmund Salmundersen of Asbjarnanes in the north. Now, the text doesn't really spend much time on Thurid. Uh, we're told of her that... She was a shrewd, determined woman, quick to anger and demanding. I mean, that's actually kind of a lot of information, though. I mean, but that's it. There's nothing else for us there. But uh, we are, we're not even told what her reputation is outside of that. But she's clearly something special. Not only is this <laughs> the second man to propose to her in a short time, but, uh, of course, we have to acknowledge that she's, you know, rather wealthy. She comes from a good family, so sure. she's going to attract a lot of attention. Um, but uh, this man has traveled a fair distance to make his play, and he's offering a really large dowry as part of the proposal. So this is good right, business. So, yeah, her wealth is not necessarily uh, an immediate factor here, right? He's the one with the money to throw around. True. I guess uh, it's the influence of the family is probably the right. Right. No, that's absolutely it. right. Uh, and the second marriage works out much better than the first. Thurid and Guzman settled in at Asbjarnanes, and they eventually have six children, four sons, two daughters. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, Thurid's sisters have also been growing up and moving out. Uh, Olaf's daughter, Bergthora, marries Thorhall, uh, the Gothi of uh, Jupifjord. This clan just keeps making strong marriage alliances, don't they? This is yeah, their, well, this is their thing. That's the game, right? And it, that, that whole concept was set up in the very beginning with Owl the Deep-Minded. Uh, but yeah. In the game uh, of marriages, you wed or you die. That's right. Uh <laughs> So Bergthora and Thorall have a son named Kjartan, uh, but not the same Kjartan that we're interested in, but they have a son named right. Kjartan. Uh, and Olaf's other daughter, Thorbjörg the Stout, marries Asgir Snartison. Mm-hmm. They also have a son named Kjartan, and his family line is given, but this also isn't the important Kjartan, obviously. These aren't the Kjartans you're looking for. I, I, Your I, Jedi I, mind I, tricks will not work on me. Yeah. Hmm? These aren't the Kjartans. I don't know what my Obi-Wan voice would be. Hello there. <laughs> These aren't the Kjartans you're looking for. That's your that's your Obi Wan. I don't know. I don't really. I don't have a. I don't have an Alec yeah, Guinness uh, impression yeah. stack ready to go off the top of my head. Well, your Jedi mind tricks wouldn't work on me anyway. Uh, but it's true, actually. the The important Kjartan is Olaf's son, the brother of Berg, Thora, and Thorbjörg. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that the name keeps cropping up multiple times in the family, um, because we were told earlier that Kjartan Olofsson is named for his maternal grandfather, King Merkjartan in Ireland. Yeah. So they're making this a standard name within the family line now. Clearly, this is a family that isn't hiding its royal Irish light under a bushel. <laughs> right. Uh, they don't mind a bit reminding people that the blood of kings runs in their veins. That's right. Uh Anyway, uh, Thorbjörg's husband, Asgir, dies, and she remarries later to a man named Vermin the Slender. Yes, and I think we talked about that that, in the last episode. Yeah, that couple is familiar to regular listeners who have an obsessive attention to detail, because this is the same couple that, as we said, we met in Greta's saga, Erebidge's saga, Frostbrother's saga, and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Thorbjörg is usually depicted as that no-nonsense woman who wields her husband's authority much more effectively than he does himself. Uh, But yeah, we covered all that in the last episode. So Thorbjörg and Vermund have a daughter, Thorfinna, who marries Thorsten Kugason. Another reasonably big name, by the way. Uh, this family is just building that spiderweb of influence and bloodlines all over Iceland. Right, yeah. So as Olaf's kids are continuing to grow the family reputation, 
Olaf's still proving himself one of the most successful men in the district. His farm is profitable, and he's being consulted on important matters all over the place. And John, he's got an ox with four horns. How about that? So clearly he's doing well for himself. Well, yeah. You, you did say four horns. Yeah. Yeah, the ox has two horns in the normal places on an ox's head. Uh, but he's mm-hmm. also got one growing straight out from his head and the other growing out of his forehead and curving down past his eyes. It's a unicorn? No, no, wait. It's a it's a tetracorn. Well, well, or a quatricorn, maybe. It's got four mm-hmm. horns, right? So, uh, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> Olaf calls the fourth horn the icebreaker, since the ox likes to use this this horn to dig away snow and ice to forage in the winter. So Olaf owns a magical tetra cow. That's nice. <laughs> I, I prefer quadricorn. Uh, that makes sounds better to me. But all right. Um, we, we should also acknowledge that uh, this uh, this guy has a name. His name is Hari. No, it's not. It really is. He's Hari the Four-Horned Ox. This little digression is just delightful. Oh, and Hari's uh, remarkably intelligent for an ox, um, and he leads Olaf's herd for years. Uh, they become very good friends. Hari should have a theme song. Hari should have his own saga, honestly. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> the saga of the Quatracow. Yeah. Unfortunately, his uh, his life comes uh, down to just a few brief items. Uh, his life story, I guess. Okay. Unfortunately, his life story comes down to just a few brief items. Uh, he cares for the entire herd for years. He's good at that. Um, he gets a pasture named after him. And he's got the, uh, you know, the odd horns sticking out of his head. Well, and one more thing. He lives 18 years before the icebreaker horn falls off of him. And Olaf slaughters him for meat the following autumn. I mean, it's it's a serious letdown, isn't it? It, it turns out uh, that uh, this is also a bad move by Olaf. Uh, once that horn falls off, he decides to kill him. And, uh, well, there are consequences to killing a named ox like this. That cow had powerful friends. Yeah. That same night, Olaf is visited in his dreams by a large and angry woman. Olaf, are you asleep? No, I'm awake. You are asleep, but you ought just as well to be awake. You have killed my son and sent him to me disfigured without his horn. And for that, I shall make sure that you see a son of yours covered in blood. And I shall choose the one I know you would... <coughs> excuse me. <laughs> would least want to part with. Foreboding. Do you need a, do you need a cup of water there, spectral figure? <laughs> it's very dry here in the afterlife. <laughs> So uh, for anyone keeping count, that's two separate predictions that there will be a tragic killing within Olaf's family. So far, we know that the sword Legbiter will be involved and that it will involve one of Olaf's sons. I wonder which one. Well, yeah, I don't, we don't need to be coy. Uh, Kjartan's the favorite son, so it's pretty clear that these predictions refer to him. Um, well, excuse me for trying to add a little suspense. You're excused. Don't do it again. Part 19. 
The dreams of Gudrun Alva's daughter. So the story fast forwards a bit at this point now that everyone's been introduced. Uh, mm-hmm. It's going to move about 12 years ahead. Okay, so Botley and Kjartan and Kjartan's brothers are all teenagers now. Uh, as are the sons of Olsvif. Uh, so, uh, and then I guess we'll guess that Guthrun is about 13 or so, something like that. Absolute speculation, but yeah, it's, sure. it's got to be somewhere around there. Yeah. Uh, so far, uh, Guthrun's life is pretty normal for an Icelandic tween of the 10th century. Uh, caring for livestock, occasional chneftafel games, uh, weaving, having prophetic dreams and fishing, learning to run a household and... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Go, go back a second. You said prophetic fishing. dreams. I don't know if they fished, honestly. Did they? Did young women fish? I assume, you know, everybody they gets help, involved. They help with all the tasks. But yes, prophetic dreams. I think that's the one you're, you're interested in. Um, but no time for that now. Uh, one summer morning, Gudrun is sent down to the nearby hot springs. And yes, we have a mention of the hot springs for once in, in mm-hmm. the sagas. It's great. Yep. Um, but she's goes, she goes down to the hot springs to greet some kinsmen. Uh, right, it's interesting because it does suge- – the, the, this moment when she's going, being sent down to collect kinsmen, it yeah. does suggest that the hot spring is kind of the, the, the expected place where people will gather or mm-hmm. stop in on their way through town. So if you want to find kind of passersby, this is a good place to look. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, by the way, um, on that rainy first day, you know, like yeah. uh, when I was in Iceland, uh, yeah. we, you know, the, my, my tradition, having gone twice now, is to take an overnight flight, get off the plane in the morning, get a rental car, and then drive to the uh, the hot springs in uh, uh, the hot spring, like Thermal River, I guess, in uh, mm-hmm. Reykjadal. And um, um, it, we, we hiked all the way up there on no sleep. And it was raining the whole time. That's where mm-hmm. I got soaked and my shoes got ruined. Um, and the the, it, the 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 river was cold, John, <laughs> because of all the rain and cold air. Well, <laughs> it was a, it was a long hike up up. Well, maybe the they hadn't known you were coming. They would have put the kettle on. <laughs> they should have. They really should have. It was disappointing, and we were soaked after that. So, um, I will always remember the amazing time I had in 2018 at that particular yeah. river. And then this time where it didn't go so well. So when you and say tradition, you mean that you did it last time and it worked. I mean, it's a tradition now in that I've done it twice. <laughs> well, so it only worked if, once, though. Well, I mean, that's a 50-50. In baseball, that's a 500 average. I think that's pretty that's good. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. If it's yeah. for baseball, I'd be very impressed. <laughs> right. But it's not. It's just it's just getting <laughs> off an airplane and hiking up a hill. But uh, Anyway, yeah. there was some mention of hot springs. Oh, hot springs. That's what we, yeah. So, uh, like I say, one summer morning, Gudrun is uh, headed down to the hot springs to greet some of her kinsmen, uh, the wise chieftain, whose name is Guest Odlifsson. And his son is there too, uh, Thorth Gestson. Um, and Guest is, uh, he's famed for his knowledge and his ability to foretell future events. Mm-hmm. So that might come in handy here. One of your thingmen, I believe, as if that weren't already obvious from that fawning introduction. Was it fawning? I didn't think it was fawning. I thought it was more <laughs> playful. It was more like, uh, I don't even remember who this guy is. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I'm just reporting. Look. Yeah. Uh, but he does happen to be a thingman of mine. He happens uh, to yeah. be very a important. Thingman. Whatever. Uh, if I recall correctly, he's a thingman of yours because you begged for a second chance to choose a thingman from Ref the Sly Saga. <laughs> I don't I don't recall that. Um, uh-huh. But the point is, this prognosticating wonder man... <laughs> is passing through the neighborhood. And his young cousin, Gudrun, has come to meet him. And the two of them get to talking. 
as you do when you visit family in the hot springs. And in the course of the small talk, Gudrun brings up something that's been on her mind. Oh, something Lord. important. It's dream quest time. I know you love dreams, and yes, it's mm-hmm. time. Uh, but just a quick warning. If you don't want to have the entire rest of the saga more or less laid out for you, you might want to skip ahead about eight minutes or so because Gudrun's going to spill a whole mess of beans here and pretend like she doesn't know what it means. Right. On the on the other hand, this is technically a literary analysis podcast, so maybe you should listen. Uh, maybe. Choose your own adventure, really. Yeah. Uh, Andy, should I take Gudrun's part? I assume you would object to me voicing your thingman. You couldn't be more right. Plus, I love your woman's voice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've had compliments. Uh, me and Dave Foley, both known for our portrayal of women. <clears throat> I've had many dreams this winter, and four of them especially have caused me some concern. No one has been able to interpret them to my satisfaction. I'd like to know what they mean, even if they aren't favorably interpreted. Hmm. Well, tell me your dreams, Guthrum. Let's see if I can make something of them. In the first dream, I was standing outdoors by a stream, wearing a tall headdress that didn't suit me. I wanted to change my headdress, but many people were advising me against it. I refused to listen, pulled off the headdress, and threw it into the stream. My dream ended there. I see. And the second? Well, in the second dream, I was standing by a lake. I wore a silver arm ring, which suited me very well. I intended to keep it and treasure it, but it slipped from my arm unexpectedly and fell into the lake. I never saw it again. It disturbed me to lose it much more than it should have. Then I woke. I find this dream no less remarkable in its meaning than the first. In the third dream, I wore a gold arm ring that comforted me after my losses. I expected to own this one longer than the last, but it suited me no better than the silver ring had done. Then I stumbled and stretched out my arm to break my fall, but the golden ring struck a stone and broke in two. I saw blood seeping from the broken ends. I could see now that the ring had had flaws that made it fragile, but I still felt that if I'd looked after it better, I might have kept it whole. The dream ended there. Hmm. The source of your dreams does not seem to be drying up. Yeah, you know you're wearing out your welcome when the professional dream interpreter starts glancing at his watch and hinting you should wrap it up. (laughs) Uh, Just one more to go. In my final dream, I wore a gold helmet on my head, set with many gems. This treasure was mine, but it seemed to be too heavy for me to bear, so that it kept my head bowed. This wasn't the helmet's fault, though, and I did not intend to get rid of it, but but then it fell from my head into the waters of Helmsfjord, and I woke up, and that's all my dreams. Hmm. Yeah, see, that, that's quite a list. Um, yeah. Some good writing in there, too, actually. Mm-hmm. I, I really like the the detail and the depth of that, and there, there's a lot of creativity there, this idea of the, the golden ring striking a stone and breaking in two with blood seeping from both mm-hmm. ends. Great stuff. I, I really <laughs> like that. Um, yeah, dream visions. Yeah. But uh, let's recap here. We have a headdress that doesn't fit, a silver arm ring that falls into a lake, and then a gold arm ring that breaks and bleeds, and a bedazzled helmet that falls <laughs> into the water at Homsyard. That's the list. I didn't miss any. I got them all, right? I, I, yeah, I don't think so. That was all of them. Okay. Now, um, guest listens to all of this. 
with great interest, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And not frowning at all. No, no. He frowns at her for a minute and then says, I can see easily enough what your dreams mean, as can everyone who's listening. Mm-hmm. But you may find the fair lacking in variety, since I interpret them all in a very similar way. You are destined to have four husbands. The first will be a man not to your liking. Like the ill-fitting headdress, this marriage will not suit you. You will leave this man just as you cast off the headdress. Then your second husband will be more to your liking. The silver ring tells of that marriage. You will care deeply for him, but it will not last long. I wouldn't be surprised if this man were drowned. This is this is a lot to hand to a tween. <laughs> uh, he's not done. Yeah. Uh, remember, she's got to get married four times. Yep. Right? Your third dream was of a gold arm ring, which represents your third husband. He will not surpass the second as much as you might expect him to. But if my guess is right, there will be a change in religion around that time, and this husband of yours will adopt that new faith, which will make him seem nobler. Whoa, what? He, he got that from a gold arm ring? Uh, yeah, I mean, when when I every time I read this, actually, I'm like, okay, there's a little bit of stretch in here. Right, right. Yeah, this third dream. I sense the hand of a post-conversion writer here. Yeah, yeah. But sh- let's just continue. So uh, he says, the broken ring seeping blood signifies that he will be killed. And it is only then that you will fully see the flaws in that marriage. And in your fourth dream, you wore a golden and jeweled helmet. It was a heavy weight to bear and represents a husband that will far surpass you. You lost that helmet in the waters of Hamsfjord, which indicates that your fourth husband will be at that fjord on the last day of his life. Or, you know, that's my best guess. What do I know? I'm just a guy. <laughs> yeah, and, I'm uh, just a guy in a hot spring. <laughs> just, a, just a brilliant dream interpreter. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, cue a long and awkward pause. Well, cue the foreboding. That too. Gudrun is flushed and red-faced by the time Guest finishes his analysis, but she takes a minute to calm down and says, Well, I suppose you'd have made a prettier prediction of my future if I'd given you better material for it. And I thank you for interpreting the dreams for me. You've given me plenty to think about if all this comes to pass. So, John, I know how you feel about dreams Mm -hmm. in the sagas. You got any belly aching to do about these dreams? Nah. I'm already on the record about dream interpretation as a literary device. Uh, But if if you're going to have one or or four, it (laughs) might as well be something like this. Yeah, well, I mean, it's pretty well accepted that this is the linchpin of the saga. Mm -hmm. It's probably mentioned in most of the scholarship about this text. And usually it's seen as the moment when Gudrun's story begins to drive the narrative, to capture the attention of the audience. Right, I mean, and that makes sense if only because she just dreamed the structure for the rest of the saga. And about accessories. And that. Uh, but mm-hmm. the structure is the remarkable thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, dream visions are a basic building block of the medieval narrative, right? Mm-hmm. But in this episode, the dreams are almost painfully obvious. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't take a genius to listen to those dreams and figure them out. But, uh, no. you know, 
Uh, now, Armand uh, Jakobsen has a great take on this. He actually argues that the dreams are so transparent that it's almost as if it were a mistake on the author's part, he says. Huh. Four dreams, four precious objects, and four husbands. It seems almost incredible, he goes on, that Guthrun hasn't thought of this interpretation herself. Couldn't agree more. Mm-hmm. Well, Armand's suggesting that it is that obvious, and that the audience was expected to infer that Guthrun did figure this out herself, and that she's shaping her own life and future by feeding this dream to a recognized and respected dream reader like Kest. Yeah, I, I like this argument. Uh, one of the things that it's surprisingly hard to teach most people is that past audiences were sophisticated enough to know when a literary construct was being put before them. So yeah, like using dreams to shape story, that's not something that we invented in sitcoms in the 60s, in other words. Yeah, no, the the little thing that goes on right. in every sitcom from like 1960 to 1990. Uh, right, no, readers knew that written dreams were usually didactic, or, or at the very least, they were expository and allegorical in nature. Mm-hmm. Right? They were for teaching or for metaphor, or for artistic sublimity. They were almost never just dreams. Right. Uh, and even at a textual level, dreams weren't always literal, or in fact, actually dreams. Yeah. So Armand's point is, in part anyway, that the way the dream is presented in this story raises the possibility that Gudrun is making it up, or that she's mm. authoring the dream herself. Well... I mean, if we want to look at manuals of dream interpretation from the medieval period, we could we could spin off into a whole different conversation, first of all. But without going too deeply down that rabbit hole, the understanding of dreams allowed for many dreams being generated within the self and within the mind of the individual. You, you said without going down that rabbit hole, though. I, I'm just I'm just dipping a toe. Dipping uh, a but toe. okay. All right. Okay. Uh, dreams. In other words, dreams can be meaningful, but they can also result from imbalances in the dreamer. Uh, right. Dreams created by the dreamer, whether consciously or unconsciously, can still be of interest for what we learn about the dream's maker. Hmm. In other words, Gudrun's dreams might actually tell us more about her if we read them as something she made up rather than as a prophecy given to her through dreams. That's interesting, at least. Yeah. And, th- and that brings us back to the literary utility of dreams. Yeah. Uh, but not right now. Um, although I think for me, the, you know, I, as much as I mm-hmm. like Armand's uh, take on it, mm-hmm. um, I, I kind of like that, that line that she says when she introduces uh, the dreams to guests. She says, um, no one has interpreted them to my satisfaction. Right. To me, that's, to me that suggests that she, she knows what these dreams mean mm-hmm. and other people have told her what they think. They've all told her the same thing that guest tells her. But this is now a respected man who's, uh, whose um, interpretation she can trust, and it confirms for her what she already knew. That's the see, way that's that I funny. read this. I see that very differently. When hmm. she says no one else has interpreted my satisfaction, that suggests to me uh, exactly Armand's point, that she either has crafted these dreams or already has interpreted them, and no one is giving her the interpretation that she wants – thus sort of laying out her future for her. Uh, Guest gives her an interpretation that makes sense. She doesn't like it, but yeah. it's the sort of what she sees as the true interpretation of her dreams as opposed to mm-hmm. the sort of the hack interpretation she's been getting from every Tom Dickens Sven on the Fjord. 
Right. So, um, yeah, e- either way, it's, it's really fascinating. And I think if you, if you do want to, uh, dig into dream visions and their, their value to saga literature, uh, this is a great example of, mm-hmm. of, yeah. uh, what you can do with that. But, um, yeah. Anyways, the, the point for now is that Gudrun's dream is being used to foreshadow the structure of the rest of the saga. And it's useful for yeah. us as an audience. Sure. But it's also a hell of a conversation killer. What, you mean being told that your future is to marry and bury four husbands is a conversation killer? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, things are obviously a little awkward now between Gudrun and Guest, and so she rides off for home. Right, and meanwhile, Guest continues on his journey, and in a little while he passes near the farmstead of Olaf Peacock and accepts an invite from Olaf to come tour the farm. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Now, Olaf really misses no chance to show off, does he? Uh, they call him Peacock for a reason. Well, he's got beautiful plumage. Like a Norwegian blue. Uh, so Olaf and Guest chat for a bit, but, but then Guest is distracted by the sight of Olaf's son and foster son Kjartan and Botley, who are returning from a bath with the other Olafsons. Guest identifies each of them out of the crowd and tells Olaf that Kjartan mm-hmm. will be the best of the group. Right, and a little while later, Guest and his son Thor take their leave of the farm. As they ride away, Thor is surprised to see his father crying. Why, father, do you ride with tears in your eyes? Well, I hadn't planned to mention it, but since you ask, I won't conceal from you what you'll one day see for yourself. I won't be surprised if one day Botley Thorlikson stoops over the corpse of Kjartan, and in slaying him brings about his own death. It's a vision that saddens me because of the excellence of both young men. Yep. Uh, Well, as we were saying earlier, the author's agenda here is to establish a kind of tragic inevitability to the story. Heavily salting in these foretellings. I wouldn't say it's it's pretty continental, but it's the fact is this is a tool medieval writers all over Europe were using routinely. Yeah. And meanwhile, all this prognosticating, and I, I don't think we even included that guest confirms for Olaf his fears about what's going to happen, an interpretation of the uh, visitation that he had from the uh, the mother of, uh, mm-hmm. of Icebreaker. Um, but right. yeah, um, this prognosticating that we have here, it all means that Guthrun has a lot to think about. And it's not too long before she gets the first sign that guests' dream interpretations are likely to come true. Yeah, if you're waiting for a sound effect, I don't think the sound effect works if we're the ones doing the foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. (laughs) Part 20. What sauce for the goose is dressing for the gander? Are you feeling okay? I'm feeling all right. (laughs) Want to take a bath? No, I'm kidding. No, no. No, I'm sorry. I think uh, you're, I think, I feel like, John, you're hinting at something. I, I am hinting at something, but uh, we aren't quite there yet. I'll uh, I'll give you the high sign when we get there. Okay, right. Uh, so when Guthrun turns fifteen, so jumping ahead a little, just a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, people decide that it's time for her to get hitched. Yeah, and to be clear, that's a pretty typical age of consent for marriage in the sagas. You use the word consent there, which is interesting, mm. because Oswif, Guthrun's father, speaks with a wealthy man named Thorvald Hotladorson of Garbstall, that's a mouthful, uh, about a marriage match. (laughs) He and Thorvald negotiate for a while over the details of the dowry and the marriage, but once that's settled, Oswif agrees to the match, without speaking to Guthrun about it. 
Hmm. Ah, so not consent. Not consent. And Gudrun isn't impressed with her husband-to-be at all, but since no one asked her opinion anyway, the wedding takes place later that year. But uh, perhaps this is kind of the point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, things don't go well when you don't ask the young yep. lady. I feel like we've um, seen that pattern Gudrun, in quite a few sagas at this point. I, I think we have. And given that this is, you know, these sagas are written by churchmen mm-hmm. or church women in the age when consent theory is really uh, mm-hmm. rather important to the church, I think that it makes sense that uh, all that stuff lines up. But Gudrun isn't really cut out for being railroaded into marriage against her will, and she's very bright, <laughs> so she rapidly spots a loophole in the agreement her father made with Thorvald. You see, the phrasing of the stipulation is, um, let me see in my book here, uh, yes, here it is, rustling my pages. <laughs> Stellar fully contr- work. Flawless. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Guthrum, Guthrum would control their joint finances once they were married and would acquire a half of their estate, whether the marriage proved a short or a long one. See, Thorvald... That's already a dangerous agreement for Thorvald to enter into. Oh, yes, but there's more, John. Mm-hmm. Thorvald was obligated to purchase whatever finery Guthrum required so that no other woman of equal wealth should own anything better although not to the point of ruining the farm's finances. Oh. Okay, yeah. I so mean, if we if we parse this a bit, what we get, what we have is an agreement that Gudrun can demand any finery or whim she wants, and mm-hmm. as long as the farm can afford it, she can get it. Yes. It's a rather unusual agreement. It that is a very unusual agreement. arrangement. And it gets yeah. worse because, or better for her, because she's in charge of the money, so presumably... She's the one to decide whether each purchase is allowed. <laughs> yes? Yes, yes. And if Thorvald bucks at any of this and they get divorced, she's guaranteed half the farm. Yeah, yeah. That's about the shape of it. All yeah. we can does, uh, make a deal. Does, does, does Thorvald not know what a prenup is for? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not. All we sure does, though. And this is a great deal for his daughter. Yeah, it sure is. So, the control over the farm and finances isn't totally outlandish. Control of a farm's assets is pretty typically given to a bride, but within the confines of a culture that gave men an outsized amount of power in general, including over the household. Now, the best couples, like Njal and Bergthora, or Gisli and Alf, uh, resolve this through mutual respect and good communication. Mm-hmm. But this isn't one of those marriages. No, not by a long shot. This is a husband that Gudrun doesn't want and doesn't respect. Right. And so she starts pushing him right away, demanding one expensive item after another to break him as soon as possible. <laughs> as the author tells it, there were no treasures in all the Westfjord so costly that Gudrun did not feel she deserved them, and she vented her anger on Thorvald if he failed to get them. So finally, she pushes Thorvald to his breaking point, asking for one expensive item right after another. Thorvald finally shouts, There's no limit to your demands! And slaps her in the face. Oh. Yep. Fine rosy colors, just what a woman wants in her cheeks if she's to look her best. And you have certainly given me this to teach me not to displease you. That is a great line. That is notable witticism stuff right Mm -hmm. there. One of the first notable witticism lines in the whole text, to be honest with you. It's true. Well, once Gudrun shows up, they start coming fast and furious. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the best part is the implication that Thorvald's aim was to teach her a lesson, but that she's learned a very different lesson. 
Right. Now she knows how to get under his skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, or possibly her point is that the lesson is a dud because she intends to go on displeasing him. Yes, it's probably more the latter, I think, if I know and where this is headed. We did skip over another element to the tension in this marriage, though. Uh, earlier in the episode, we mentioned the unhappy marriage of a neighbor, uh, Thord Ingunnarsson and Alv of Sauber. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was all the way back at the beginning of this yeah. episode where we we're setting up the two different families that live close to each other. Um, but yes, he thought she was unexceptional in looks and skill, and she thought he was money. Uh, he was a money grubbing nobody. So that's Thor well, and Alv. Were they right? I mean, we're not here to pass judgment. That is, really. that is literally what we're here to do. <laughs> These are subjective that is our remit. judgments. These are subjective judgments, John. We are objective at all times here. Oh, are we? See, that was judgmental. No, that was sarcasm. But objective sarcasm. Fair enough. <laughs> Touche, <laughs> sir. Uh, the point is, Thor is unhappy with his home life, and he spends a lot of time at his friend Thorvald's house. Now, once Thorvald gets married, Thor is over more and more often. And Thorvald has noticed hmm. that Thor has been spending a lot of time with Gudrun lately. Someone's looking to start a love triangle. Sort of. It's it's more of a fabliau. Uh, everyone involved is only after their own happiness, and the unhappy marriage is the impetus to infidelity. I mean, if this were a fabliau, wait, John, have we ever mentioned or explained fabliau on the podcast before? Probably, but it's definitely been a while. Uh, so okay. fabliau are stories that revolve around some combination of tricks, social satire, and sexual conquest. Uh, they were particularly popular in France in the 13th century and spread across Europe with varying degrees of success in the 13th and 14th centuries. Mm-hmm. And the logic of fablio show up sometimes in Icelandic writing of this period. Yeah. So we've got the social commentary and the potential for sexual dalliance. So we should be ready for a trick any moment now, right? Right now, in fact. Uh, clever lad. Ah. Uh, so Gudrun tells Thor the whole story about the slap. And now, Thor, I want to know what you think I might do to repay my husband. I know just the thing. Make him a shirt with the neck so low cut that it will give you the grounds for divorcing him. Mm-hmm. And it's implied here that Gudrun follows his advice because later that same spring, she announces her divorce from Thorvald and returns home to her father's house. And in keeping with the fantastic deal her father made, Gudrun gets half the wealth of the farm in the divorce. It's the uh, Jeff Bezos-McKenzie Scott model. I I guess. I don't think Thorvald's quite in the same economic stratosphere as an obscenely wealthy union-busting oligarch, but yeah. Uh, Gudrun's put herself in a good financial position. Let's say that. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, we should probably explain why wearing a low-cut shirt or a low-neck shirt is grounds for divorce. Well, I mean, it's the implication that uh, that it's a woman's blouse in the same way because that it's, uh, because it's oh, low cut in the front. Already. Yes, yes. Although I can think of several million '70s swingers who might suggest a flaw in that reasoning. <laughs> Not to mention a fair number of '80s hair metal bands. Uh, fashion well, I mean, is David a f- Bowie brought it all in. That's right. He? That's right. I mean, what yeah. can we say? You know, fashion is a fickle goddess. Uh, mm-hmm. But all right, so. Thor suggests making a feminine shirt for Thorvald. And this is a problem because of Icelandic law. Yes, because cross-dressing, whether by men or women, 
is considered unacceptable in this time period. And Mm -hmm. it was a legitimate reason for a divorce. Yeah, and this gets mentioned occasionally in the sagas, usually expressed as an aversion to wearing anything considered too close to the line. Yeah, uh, Njal Saga again. Uh, you got to think of Flossie using the somewhat uh, unisex, multi-hued uh, cloak that he was given as a pretext to reject the entire settlement offering from Njal for the death of Hoskel the White. Right, right, exactly. So if we cross-reference with the Gragas, uh, here's the law. If women become so deviant that they wear men's clothing, or whatever male fashion they adopt in order to be different from women, Likewise, if men adopt women's fashion, whatever form it takes, then the penalty for that, whichever of them does it, is minor outlawry. It is a summoning case, and five neighbors are to be called for it at the assembly. Mm. So this is potentially more serious than a simple pretext for divorce. Mm -hmm. Guthrun and Thor are playing a trick that could have devastating consequences for Thorvald, even extending to outlawry if they choose to pursue it. That's still in keeping with the Fablio genre, though. Um, the English language fablio people are probably most likely to be familiar with would be Chaucer's Miller's Tale. Right? If we look at sort of the consequences of tricks in that story, one lover is humiliated and involuntarily subjected to literally kissing ass. A second lover is permanently disfigured by a lacerating burn to his buttocks. And the husband suffers cuckolding, a broken arm, and being denounced as a lunatic before his neighbors. Only mm-hmm. the wife escapes consequences for the tricks that have been played. It's such a great story. Seriously. If, if you've somehow never read that one, do yourself a favor. Yeah. So in this case, we have a heteronormative cultural precept that disallows cross-dressing. Thor and Gudrun are using the criminal aspect to justify divorce, which was an accepted practice. And as you say, there are potentially quite serious consequences there for Thorvald, but that clearly isn't a concern for them here. Uh, of course, all the text says is that she divorces Thorvald the spring after this plan is hatched, which means it's actually left ambiguous in the text as to whether Guthrun ever publicly denounces Thorvald over the shirt, or whether she just uses the threat of denunciation to force him to accept the divorce under the under the terms of the prenup that her father worked out. Yeah, true. That's true. Uh, and a lot of scholarship about this moment ignores that distinction, mm-hmm. but... Let's follow the usual logic here that she actually goes ahead with the shirt and the accusation. Well, in that case, there would be a bit of eye of the beholder going on, right? I mean, since obviously the goal would be to make a shirt that Thorvald won't refuse to wear outright, Mm -hmm. but can then plausibly be called feminine by Guthrun and anyone she calls as a witness. Unless. Unless. Unless Gudrun is just barefacing her way out of this. She could just make the shirt, then mix it in with Thorvald's other belongings, then claim that it's his and that he wears it around the farm all the time. Mm. He never has to actually wear it, right? Right. Then she could make it a little more irrefutably feminine, since Thorvald probably wouldn't even see it until confronted with the divorce claim. I mean, and sure, but that's a slightly do? riskier option because she does have to summons five witnesses from among their neighbors. But she's probably got one already. I mean, Thor's going to back up whatever she says, and she's got that's, other friends, right? Yeah, that's true, isn't it? That's devious. That's devious. A bit of a clever plan, really. Yeah, I'm going to stick with devious. <laughs> so Gudrun's first dream has already come true. She's cast off her first husband, the one who was represented by the fancy hat that she threw away. All right, one down, three to go. Part 21, The 
the midnight ride of Breaches Owl. <laughs> I like that title. So, thank you. Uh, Guthrun and Thor remain friendly after the divorce. Say friendly. And the following year, they ride together to the All Thing. Well, that's awfully friendly. Uh, they're mm-hmm. riding with guest Oldlifson, the guy who predicted that Guthrun's first husband would be a bad fit. Hmm. Which, given that Thor is already fablioing his way into the running to become husband number two, is a little awkward. Well, awkward why, John? Well, let's remember that Gudrun's second dream was of a husband who would die violently. Yes, but it's not like she's telling people about that. It's not the kind of thing <laughs> you advertise, and you definitely don't want to tell I, your boyfriend. <laughs> right. Uh, still, it's a delicate situation, since a Guest knows about Gudrun's fate, and Gudrun has just had proof that his predictions for her marriages That's are true. likely to come true. Yeah, I mean, you would think she'd be running away from anybody right. she actually likes. But yeah, no one's telling Thor about it. Uh, there, there's oh, another well. cringeworthy problem, though. Oh, yeah. Thor's still married. Yeah, he is. Uh, yeah. yeah. Remember, he was spending so much time at his friend Thorvald's house in the first place because he and his wife, Alth, don't get along. And as they're riding along, Gudrun mocks Thor. I was wondering, is the rumor true that your wife, Alth, is often dressed in breeches with a codpiece and long leggings? Why, uh, I hadn't noticed that. Well, you mustn't be paying much attention, then. If you haven't noticed such a thing, what other reason can there be for her being called Breaches Alf? Now, Thor is a little slow on the uptake here. Mm-hmm. Or else he's hesitant to go along with whatever Gudrun is suggesting, because his response is, Okay, now, I don't think anyone actually calls her that. <laughs> she can't have been called that for very long. Well, what's more important is how long the name will follow her. Mm. I, I mean, this is just great dialogue here. Um, yeah. I love the characterization of Thor not quite figuring out what's going on and the implication of uh, Gudrun very much uh, mm-hmm. implying here what's uh, what's about to happen. Right. Um, right. And what kind a Nick trying, can... trying desperately to push him into action. So this is just turnabout on the trick that the two of them played on Gudrun's ex. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Gudrun's an efficient plotter. If mm-hmm. framing a spouse for violating heteronormative social mores works, why waste time and energy on a new idea? <laughs> well, I mean, there's a danger of someone spotting the pattern. It's pretty unusual. Well, that doesn't seem to be a problem here, as it turns out. Uh, but there is a sort of unwritten rule. Uh, in Fablio and in humor stories in general, that it's not a great idea to repeat a trick. Mm-hmm. It leaves the trickster vulnerable. Yeah. Fool me once with your cross-dressing narratives. Shame on me. You. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Don't fool me again. <laughs> Won't get fooled I, again. Yeah, I think, I think that's what it is. I forget. I forget how George W. did it, but it was, so it was good he. stuff. <laughs> Well, I mean, we can go back to the Miller's tale for this. One of the tricks in the tale is Allison, the carpenter's wife, promising an annoying would-be lover named Absalom a kiss and then sticking her bare bottom out of the window in the dark for him to smooch. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, he figures out that he's been fooled. But when he returns with the red-hot bar of iron looking for revenge, the wife's lover, Nicholas, decides to repeat the joke to to stick his rear out the window. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe get a kiss for himself. To amend the jape is the way Chaucer puts it. 
Yes, right, and and it's and it's all the it would be all the more humiliating for the mm-hmm. uh, for the victim, uh, kissing this man's ass. But uh, since Absalom already knows that joke, he he has the hot poker ready and he jabs mm-hmm. Nicholas in the ass with the hot poker, burning him horribly. Sorry for the spoilers if you haven't read it, but you know. right, it looks like Nicholas became the butt of the joke. Puts yeah. on shades, waits for hard cut opening credits, etc. But yes. Yeah. We can get into dead frog humor analysis for a second. Uh, a repeated joke isn't funny. Dead a frog. joke that creates an expectation of repetition and then subverts that expectation is funny, or at least can be. I always love it when we analyze what is funny and how funny works. Right, that's dead frog humor analysis. Yeah. Nobody yeah, enjoys so- it very much and the frog dies. <laughs> So uh, we have to look for there to be some sort of consequence for the person who plays the trick the second time. Mm-hmm. When the would-be trickster is supposed to suffer some embarrassment or exposure. So we're going to hope sure. for that, right? Right. At first, though, Gudrun's suggestion works out fine. She encourages Thorith to waste no time. So he announces right there at the All Thing that he's divorcing his wife. The problem is, his wife's not at the All Thing. Uh, so the announcement ends up as a bit of an anticlimax. Well, sort of. It still counts, at least in the opinions of the movers and shakers at the gathering. Mm-hmm. And Alv may not be attending herself, but she does have family at the assembly, including her two brothers, Thorkell Pup and Knut. And they're rather angry, but mm-hmm. manage to resist going after Thorth right there and then. They're going to wait a little bit. You can see their point. Well, I mean, this is a slander on their sister and a pretty transparent attempt to justify screwing her over in a divorce. You can definitely see why they'd be annoyed. This is, I mean, yeah, uh, according to the law, a man has the right to kill in defense of six women, right? I mean, this is a famous bit of the law. It, it technically refers to the avenging of an assault, though. But, yeah, uh, but I think we can yeah. extend the logic. Okay. So, a man's sister is listed as fourth among the six women a man can kill to defend. And in this case, with a rumor being spread about their sister, a lot of people at the All Thing, or among the audience for a saga for that matter might see Alv's brothers as being entirely justified in responding violently here. I mean, ultimately, they are restrained, though, and Mm -hmm. nothing more is going to happen at this all thing. And afterwards, Thor rides home with all of Gudrun's brothers, and so he's able to return safely home. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Alv gets word that her marriage is over, and more importantly, why it's over. And she says, Kind of him to leave me so, and let me be the last to know. Which is a verse, technically. Yes, it is a a verse. And this saga is pretty verse poor, so we're going to take what we can get. Right, and this mini-verse is the only objection Al raises to the divorce. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thor makes a generous offer of property division, and to no one's surprise, he then rides immediately to Gudrun's father's farm and makes a proposal to marry Gudrun. Wow, the body's still warm, Thor. Come on. (laughs) Uh, And he wastes no time. The two of them are married later that same summer, which means that Thor has now officially become the second husband from Gudrun's dream. Mm -hmm. The Silver Ring husband. Ah, the one that guests predicted would be drowned. You just wanted that sound effect again. I mean, it's been a while, so we got to keep it, keep the, Mm -hmm. keep the bit going. But uh, but also, that is what Guest said. Anyway, they're married now, and Alv is going to keep quiet. 
Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, her brothers are running all over the countryside trying to drum up support for a lawsuit against Thorth for this unfair divorce and slander. But mm-hmm. they can't find enough people willing to help them out for some reason. Right. And still, Alf says nothing. In fact, an entire year goes by and she lets the whole thing slide. Hmm. That's very nice of But her. it is. But since we're still talking about it, there's clearly going to be a third act here. Oh, well, the third act, if we're going to call it that, starts the following summer. When Auld is up in Hvamsdal, uh, not far from Thor than Gudrun's new homestead in Laugardal. She instructs a shepherd to ask around discreetly at Laugardal uh, and find out who's staying where. Where where are they exactly and what yeah. is the layout? So when the boy returns, he grins at Auld. I learn news that will be pleasing to your ears. There's a great distance separating the beds of Thor than Gudrun these days because she is visiting their shieling and he's busy at work building a new hall. Only he and his father-in-law, Osvif, are staying at home. Is this uh, Crutchy from Newsies? <laughs> Who, no, he speaks guy? a little bit differently. He's okay. a little bit more of a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> All right. This kid's probably from Staten Island. <laughs> oh, what a loser. All right, well. <laughs> wow. Well, you've done a fine job of spying. Wait until the others are not alert, and then saddle a pair of horses for me. And a few hours later, when Auth climbs onto her horse, she has changed clothes. Now she's dressed in men's breeches for the occasion. Right, so that's something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a, a pretty unsubtly a declaration that she intends violence. And the outfit underlines that. She's not in a right. women's clothes, she's in men's clothes. Right, she also has a short sword on her belt, which is another minor clue. <laughs> But the yeah, but the men's clothes also serve to remind anyone who sees her why she feels compelled to go and find her ex and settle a score or two. Right, that's something we can talk about in a few minutes. But definitely, first let's wrap up this part of the narrative. Uh, all right, uh, so Alder rides along with the shepherd to Thord's farm at Lauga, and when they arrive, it's well after dark because bad things happen in the dark, John. She hides the horses behind a stone wall, and she leaves the shepherd to guard them. Yeah, so this is the saga equivalent of leaving the engine running. Well, when you're planning an attack on your ex-husband in his new home, the quick getaway is essential. So (laughs) Owl slips into the house and finds the bed closet where Thor is sleeping. It's not locked, so she just lets herself in. Right, I mean, she's not trying to be particularly sneaky or silent, by the way. No, she's not sneaking. Um, She actually deliberately wakes Thor up, but when he sees it's someone in men's clothing, he just assumes it's one of the workers and rolls over to go back to sleep. Okay, just basic Saga Survival 101 here. If you wake up in your private bedchamber and there's an armed man standing over you, maybe don't go back to sleep. But John, in medieval Icelandic houses, uh, whether we're talking about 13th, 14th century or earlier... Um, they're very small, and there's a lot of people living there. So there's a lot of movement that's going on all night long as people are getting up to go to the bathroom or getting doing some kind of work. Uh, there's a lot of people, I think, moving around. So it wouldn't be that surprising right. that someone no, is, but, is there. But it's specifically said that Thor is in his private bedchamber in a separate room that isn't locked. Yeah, if, but... So if they're going in there on their way to the bathroom, he's really designed this house poorly. (laughs) 
I don't know. I don't know anything about his private bedchamber and how it works, to be honest with you. Uh, but I just know that these houses uh, don't have a whole lot of room in them. So I wouldn't be shocked to see a man standing over me no matter where I was. In in fact, there might be a man sleeping next to me uh, in a lot of these places. Not so. not in your private bedchamber. I, I really think you're underestimating how, uh, how much privacy you can expect in a private bed closet. Uh, well, there are two words know. in the title. One of them is private. <laughs> I question whether he had a private bedchamber, to be honest with you. I mean, the, the, the text says otherwise, sir. Well, yeah. Well, anyway, bed closet assassinations are as much a trope as blue cloak wearing killers or Norwegian companions. We've seen them before. Right. And but I got to say nothing about Thor so far has convinced me he's the uh, sharpest axe in the forest. No. Well, I mean, Auth has tried to wake him, so it's not like she didn't give him a chance to defend himself, I guess. Mm-hmm. Although, uh, in uh, Gisli Saga, Gisli does try to wake up Thorgrim as well, although he ends up touching his sister instead. Uh, but it's a very similar kind of scene. Although, I've talked to you about that. I I, I think that's because his, his sister is eight months pregnant at that point, and he's not sure which of the two very large, bulky people in the bed <laughs> is his victim. Right, right. Make sure he doesn't accidentally stab his sister. Oh, you think he's reaching to find his sister to make sure it's not her? Right. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that that's quite quite possible. Um, but either way, I mean, here you have a person. I mean, she's maybe not trying to wake him. She's trying to make sure that she's got the right person. I mean, I guess we can make mm-hmm. the same argument here. Um, but the, anyway, to, to wrap it up, uh, she draws her sword and she strikes down on Thord's torso, cutting mm-hmm. across both pectorals and lodging the sword in his right arm, pinning him there. Right. I mean, this is a this is actually a massive blow. The sword Absolutely. is left embedded in the wood of the bed frame, and also embedded in Thord, for that matter. Yeah. So he's not getting up to run after her. So Owl <laughs> turns and walks out of the house. Doesn't run. Walks. She's so cool. Owl mm-hmm. <laughs> just walks out with yep. the dust settling around her, uh, and Thord is screaming and trying to free himself from the sword, pinning his arm down. She gets back outside. Gets on her horse and simply rides back to her farm at a brisk pace. Right. Meanwhile, Thor's thrashing around with blood pouring from his wounds. Osvif, his father-in-law, right, the only other the only other uh, man in the house, comes running in to see what's causing all the noise. And when he finds Thor, he plans to chase Alf down because he correctly surmises that such a quiet attack must mean she didn't bring any backup. Mm-hmm. But Thor stops him. Says, "No." I don't want you to think about that. What what Alv has done here is only evening the score between us. Which, John, you have to admit, that's a pretty magnanimous response from a guy who's just been maimed by his ex-wife. <laughs> it is. And maimed is the right word. Uh, Thorth heals slowly, and he never really recovers the use of his right arm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think we need to discuss this just briefly. Why do you think I have my own opinions, but why do you think mm-hmm. Thorth would not want to pursue this at all? I mean, among other things, right, it's a wound suffered from a woman. Um, yeah. Right, and in this culture, that's a problem, right? But I think, think about the number key. of times when we've seen um, a woman who strikes a blow on a man and will say, right, and take that with you that you have been struck by a woman. Right. Yeah. Um, that that's that's a a point of shame all by itself. There may also be some guilt here. Right? I mean, the mm-hmm. the text never suggests. I mean, Thor is more than happy to break up Gudrun's marriage, but it's never suggested that he's angling to divorce his wife. Uh, right? Gudrun is the one that. who pushes that on him. So I don't yeah, know if he's, he's clearly into Gudrun. 
Uh, absolutely. But, you know, I don't know if there's a, a residual sense of guilt there. Uh, but I think it's primarily because he doesn't want to have it noised about that he was sort of caught unawares yeah. and stabbed by his wife. I agree. Ex-wife, I think too. I think both answers are exactly what I was thinking. So uh, well done, John. You get an A. Well. Um, all right. So uh, Alf's revenge is significant. And uh, as we're suggesting here, no consequences ever really come to her from mm-hmm. this act of revenge, uh, which is pretty shocking given what she's done. Um, in fact, I mean, she is. Yeah, go ahead. Yep. I was just saying, this is, you know, once again, what we're seeing here is this kind of odd parallel to a Fablio. Right? Mm. The, uh, once the trick is over, once the story ends, there's really no concern about the consequences potential in the acts, right? The, yeah, the story right. is an end in itself. Well, what's really, I really like that comparison of this sequence or these, these set of scenes um, being compared to a Fablio because it, it works really nicely and it's not something that I thought deeply about before. Um, I'm glad you introduced that to this conversation. But what, what's really, I think, really remarkable about the way that the author has approached this, because um, the sequence is absolutely right, but it doesn't feel like a Fablio. It feels mm-hmm. like it's, no. it's it's that same pattern, but it's seamlessly integrated into the saga narrative in mm-hmm. the same way that the authors are kind of seamlessly uh, integrating the romance tradition into a, a typical saga style. This is an author who is well-read in continental literature, um, but is kind of putting a an Icelandic spin on it all in a in an interesting way. So really, turns out these guys know what they're doing. Yeah, good or or, or ladies, who knows who wrote this one? You know. <laughs> um, anyway, at, at this point, uh, we're going to leave Auth. She she more or less fades into the saga's background. Um, she's no longer right. uh, an important character because she's right, played right. her role. But as we'll see, her impact on saga readers is as significant as the impact on Thor's arm. Uh, but we're almost to the end here. Let's uh, wrap up the narrative. Uh, over time, mm-hmm. Thor adjusts to his one-armed life and continues to build his new hall and wealth. Yeah, the following spring, Thor's mother, Ingun, comes to visit from her farm at Skalmarnes. Now, obviously, she's a little upset at her son's injury, but she's also got problems of her own. Ingun lives in the region overseen by Hotstein, uh, the Gothi. Now, Hotstein's a powerful man, but he's also unpopular, in part because he tends to protect troublemakers if they're friendly to him. Mm-hmm. And he's recently let a doozy of a family settle on the land near Ingun's farm. The family is a married couple, Kotkel and Grima, and their adult sons, Hatlbjorn, Slickstoneye, and Stigandi. Right, and this family is Hebridean, uh, and they've only recently emigrated to Iceland, but they've already got a reputation as troublemakers and, significantly, as sorcerers, mm-hmm. which fits. Hebrideans are kind of like Finns in the sagas, right? They're, they're frequently associated with magic in Scandinavian literature. Well, this family is definitely doing their part to build up that reputation. Mm-hmm. They use their abilities to steal livestock, send bad weather to their foes, and generally make life miserable for everyone around them. And they've been turning their attentions to their neighbor, Ingun. Right, and in fact, Thor isn't the only one being called on to do something about the Hebridean sorcerers. Most of the major figures in the district are hearing complaints. And so, as we draw this episode to a close, the people of the district begin trying to decide what to do about this new Hebridean threat. And even though that Hebridean threat and the story that goes with it is scattered throughout the chapters we've been discussing this time, Mm -hmm. we're going to save them for next time. Yep. For now, we still have a summons to take care of. Uh, John, who are we calling forth today? Well... 
Summons to the court. Breaches out. Hmm. Not a shocking choice, but I'm excited about it. Yeah, no, there's a lot to go into here. Uh, time for a quick confession. When we started this saga and I decided to tack on these summonses that we'd have time to do deep dives into individual figures, Al was one of the two figures I was most thinking of. Okay, yeah, well, who was the other one? Well, Guthrie. Oh, uh, well, yeah, obviously, I guess. Another not shocking choice. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not always out to surprise you. Uh, sometimes the obvious answers are the right ones. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about Alth or Breach's Alth. Uh, great. Uh, so I first got interested in this one because of the nickname angle, unsurprisingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Breach's Alth ends up embracing a masculine wardrobe and role in the saga. She, she repays what she sees as an attack on her honor, and she dresses in men's clothing while doing it. But that's all her laying claim to a name that was not hers. As Thor says... No one actually calls her that until Gudrun invents it as a justification for a divorce. It's an echo of Holgerth Longlegs calling Njal Old Beardless as a way of emasculating him. Right. It's, it's always worth keeping an eye on this in the sagas. The cultural emphasis on reputation means that a public figure has to be constantly vigilant against the damage of an insulting nickname. Now, whether that nickname is a slander or a legitimate critique, is it's almost irrelevant, I think. Uh... Because the correct response to either one is to resist the implications of the of the naming. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's a second cultural emphasis uh, on gender conformity here that provides another entry into analyzing this section, which right. is really fascinating stuff. Yeah. No, if anyone is listening uh, to this and working on Lockstyle Saga for a class, uh, there's a couple of paper ideas right there. Uh, mm-hmm. So as an opener to this, I think we should pay attention to how the author holds Alv up as a kind of – an unlikely exemplar for honorable behavior. Uh, because one of the compelling things about Al's story is how clearly the narrative seems to be on her side throughout. Absolutely, yeah. She's not introduced as a particularly admirable figure. Um, she's called initially by her husband, neither good-looking nor accomplished. Sure. But after that introduction, everything she says and does compels positive interpretation. As Sandra Stabauer points out, uh, Alv's future appearances in the saga are both brief, but both of them have clear positive connotations. Uh, And even the first central episode in which she appears is meant to establish her as sympathetic. And not only, she says, to modern audiences who are conversant with late 20th century variations on feminist theory, but also sympathetic to the audience for whom the saga was originally written. Hmm. I mean, that's hard to prove. Uh, we have to make some assumptions about the audience and its value system to get to that point. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I don't think they're I don't think they're outlandish assumptions, but sure. Uh, by the way, Stavar is willing to push this point pretty far. Uh, she actually compares Alv to Skarpaven Yalson. Uh, she hmm. says both characters overstep the traditional societal codes, but seem to be held up for the audience's admiration despite that or perhaps because of it. Like Scarpathen, she's represented to us as something of a likable rogue, neither fair of face nor addicted to a work ethic, but ready for action when she feels her honor trespassed upon. Hmm. That's a lot to claim. Yeah. Might be stretching things just a little, but I like the idea behind it. Um, Especially for a figure who occupies such a relatively small amount of saga real estate, I think we can say that Aul is a well-drawn character. And I think her actions might well be compelling and relatable to a contemporary audience in some ways. But uh, 
Is she a Scarpe then? I'm not sure. Yeah. We also have to think about whether Alv is defending herself from a legitimate accusation or not. Hmm. In other words, you want to reroute this over to nicknames. Of course I do. Uh, Guthrie is the what first person, the, the only person in the saga to mention the nickname Breaches Alv. And it's yeah. in the context of mimicking the gender slander against her own husband. She's proposing that Thor use the same gender nonconformity accusation against his wife that worked to end Gudrun's marriage to Thorvald. Right. I mean, there's no proof in the saga that anyone else has used the name Breeches Owl or that she has ever been seen cross-dressing, mm-hmm. wearing breeches, dressing like a man. Thor even says that he's not aware of anyone making such an accusation against her, which is, I think we can say... That that's basically an acknowledgement that Gudrun's making the whole thing up. That right. that Alv does not dress as a man on a regular basis or ever. Right. I mean, the scholarship on this makes a real meal of that question. But personally, I think you just answered it. There's no textual evidence that this is anything but an invention of Gudrun's. Some scholars have made hay out of the idea that Auth is a, a gender non-conforming figure in her life before this point, and it, I can see why they might want to do that. It's quite interesting mm-hmm. if that's true. But others are a little more careful. When Auth is wearing men's breeches for her ride to attack Thorth, Stabhar calls the moment a wink at the audience that leaves the question of her previous clothing practices both nicely ambiguous, she says, and irrelevant. I mean, ambiguous, definitely. Whether it's mm-hmm. irrelevant depends a lot on what you're hoping the text tells us about gender nonconformity. Mm-hmm. Now, what Thorth says in his accusation is that Alth had taken to wearing breeches with a codpiece, like a masculine woman. Uh, and there's a couple of translation issues here, right? First of all, yeah. Karlkonor is the word being used. It's a compound composed of the words for man, Karl, and woman, Kona, with Karl being used as a modifier. So a masculine or manly woman. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, except the phrase that is used in the saga is sem karkolner, plural, right? Yes. This is a translation choice that obscures the possibility that there's a, a category of women which Al's behavior conforms to. Mm-hmm. Referred to in the Graugas, right? And yes. Uh, a few scholars have covered this. Uh, uh, Jenny Jockins and G- uh, Gareth Lloyd Evans come to mind. Uh Evans has a nice essay on this. He argues that the word Karlkoner is ambiguous in a few ways. First, because it takes the binary terms man and woman and creates a non-binary category out of it. Mm-hmm. And second, because the plural suggests that this is a known or at least recognizable category. Yeah. In other words, Alv is not accused of being a masculine woman. She's accused of being like masculine women. In other words, like a member of a known category of gender identity. Hmm. How far out on this limb do we want to get, though? Well, Evans wants to go pretty far. Well, uh, he's you always hit the uh, the Shelley Duvall olive oil thing when you hit when you say "well" very, quite frequently on the podcast. I find it entertaining. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> so Evans says that. Uh, the comparison of Alf to a known quantity, right, a category of gender deviant women, uh, that in doing that, Thor and the author implicitly validate that such a category of people was known to exist. I'm willing to buy that line of thought. Uh, where it gets more difficult is that Karkonor is a hapax legomenon. It's a word that appears only once in the entire saga corpus in this section. And only in one manuscript version of Lakstala saga. It's in mm-hmm. the uh, Morvala book, 
version of the text. So building an argument that a version of these non-conforming women existed, it's tricky because we can't really rely on the language of the saga here to make a broader cultural argument. Well, yes, except we have the graugas and we have the just the, the mere fact that the audience who is consuming this text would recognize mm-hmm. this as problematic. Um, the Absolutely. author isn't going to make this up wholesale. They have to refer to things that are at least uh, known to the world of the saga audience in the 13th, 14th century, whenever this might be written. Um, so at that right. time, uh, which is appropriate to um, the law codes that we quoted earlier, um, clearly there is a category of non-conforming uh, women and non-conforming men um, mm-hmm. who att- attempt to dress or present themselves um, as the opposite sex. And I'm not saying it's a huge problem, but it's a big enough problem that it's addressed in the law codes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Certainly. I think uh, my point my point is only that uh, relying on the word karkonor is a problem, right? Yeah. That you can't use that word to make this case because that word doesn't appear anywhere else in the corpus. Well, conveniently, uh, you so don't need the, the word. The idea that it represents, certainly, there's a mm-hmm. broader context for that. Uh, yeah. But the word itself is something that I wouldn't want to lean too heavily on. Yeah, yeah, I'll agree with that. Uh, but uh, let's get back to the text here. Talk about the clothes that Aoth is accused of wearing, uh, and that they include breeches and a codpiece, according to the Kunz translation that we're working with here. Um, mm-hmm. It's that second part that creates the issue for me. In fact, we were asked a question about this from one of our listeners, Alice, um, who wanted to know about this uh, this codpiece that she's wearing. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's worth talking about, and I, I you know, we I, I did a little bit of digging on it. I'm sure you've dug on it as well because the choice mm-hmm. of the word codpiece uh, along with the breaches and everything like that is is such an interesting uh aspect of 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 the accusation of Alth's clothings the, the sagas actually have several women who wear breeches or pants without being criticized by those within the story or by the authors it's not that now, unusual yeah the 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 breeches pants thing is going to cause problems with our european english audience yeah, we're using pants in the American sense here. Uh, you know, the things you wear along your legs and whatnots. But uh, we could stick to breeches if that's clearer for everyone. You know, I, I think your average Brit, and I can be corrected here, I think your average Brit would suggest that not sticking to breeches is actually the point of pants. Uh, but carry on. Uh, okay. So women in the saga is wearing breeches. Go on. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so the problem is that men's breeches are cut differently. Owl's mm-hmm. breeches supposedly have an inset uh, uh, gusset or gores. Um, it's called, instead of the word codpiece, which is what uh, Kunz uses in the translation, um, if you go into the Icelandic, it says uh, a setgeri. Um, mm-hmm. And that setgeri is is a piece of fabric that uh, you, you have to kind of figure out what exactly it means. But the basic uh, assumption that people make is that it, it's it's a piece of fabric that is designed in pants to leave room for the male genitalia. Uh, so Jenny Jawkins, uh, I put it in one of her uh, one of her essays um, that uh, men need a little bit more room up front than women. Women need that room behind, <laughs> and so it's odd that uh, the setgeri is uh, in the Thank pants. Thank you, Dr. Jawkins. <laughs> yes, it's it's great. Um, but anyway, the the implications are pretty clear. You know, in the same way that Thorvald's low cut shirt implies something about his femininity, the uh, the setgeri, this uh, extra fabric in the breeches themselves, indicates something of her masculinity. Um, so it's not the argument. It, I mean, it's not the garment. It's the way the garment has been constructed for one category of bodies rather than another. Um, mm-hmm. As Jockin says. 
the issue essentially is that Alder is said to have dressed as if she had a penis. Hmm. Well, I'm I'm going to back away from any Freudian nonsense and just say that this is this really only brings us back to the idea of gender as a continuum. Sure, uh, but to be clear, Dawkins isn't saying that Owl is dressing to accommodate male genitalia or that she's deliberately attempting to create the appearance of it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's important, again, to note that that Dawkins is writing almost as if um, Owl had been dressing this way prior to the accusation. Um, I don't know that John and I necessarily agree with that. Right. No, um, I, I think it's reasonable to ask uh, if we are sort of taking Dawkins' argument. Whether a woman who dresses this way would intend a statement about her body or identity by wearing men's clothing, right? Sure. Or whether it's simply a preference. Uh, you said a minute ago that women wearing men's clothes in the sagas aren't super rare. Well, um, it's rare, but it examples? does happen sometimes. Right. Uh, because my immediate thought was of Olaf and Viglund saga. Sure, yeah. I mean, Olaf is a good one to start with. She dresses as a man in order to bluff her way out of a bad situation. She pretends to be a warrior to fool an unwanted suitor into leaving. It's a good move, and it works. Yeah, in her case, though, there's no suggestion that dressing as a man is part of a deeper gender identity. Right. right? I mean, she never suffers any penalty for the act of cross-dressing either. If anything, it's held up as an example of quick and resourceful thinking. Mm-hmm. Of course it would be, because it's a single instance, you know? Right, um, right. Which would be different from... It's clearly dictated by circumstance, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Whereas if we're thinking about Alth or, or Thorvald, for that example, or for that matter, um, the accusation there is that this is a habitual kind of thing, and it is mm-hmm. related to their gender identity. Um, right. Anyway, uh, there's a more extended version of, of this same kind of thing in Magnus Saga Jarls, uh, where a woman named Erminga dresses as a warrior named Herting and charms all the ladies that she meets while commanding a group of soldiers. Uh, Johanna Friedrich's daughter points out that the narrator revels in the fun of it all, harnessing the costume changes for comedic effect. It's uh, Mrs. Doubtfire for Vikings, basically. Yes! Ooh. More is or that, less. Is that your Doubtfire? Oh, your doubtfire or, right there? More or less, darling, yes. Oh, wow. That's... <laughs> Maybe that's more I, of a... I, I'd work on that. I'd, it's, I'd it's, workshop that a bit more. I think it's more of a Tobias Funke. Um, uh, <laughs> Mrs. Uh, I forget what, what was her name. Uh, when I, was, he, I was thinking it sounded more like Tiny Tim myself. Uh, <laughs> Tiptoe. Yes, there's, tip a, there's definitely... through the two limbs. Yeah. Uh, but for a counterexample, because I think we need one, we could look at the maiden king Thorbjörg in Hrolf Saga Gautrekrasonar. Um, mm. She dresses and behaves as a man goes by the name Thorberg, gets a male retinue from her father, embarrasses her male rivals, and seems to identify as a male, yeah. which is quite interesting. Unlike Erminga or Olaf, Thorberg or Thorberg takes on a non-binary gender role, or maybe a normative masculine role that is at odds with others' expectations of her physical body. Either way. Yeah. Now, what makes applying those examples tricky is our author's ambiguity about whether Alv actually does regularly behave sem calcor, like masculine women or not. Uh, As we said, there's no evidence that this actually is a practice of hers. Her husband's purpose in denouncing her is to create a pretext for divorce, not to force conformity on a genderqueer spouse. Hmm. Well, I mean, he's got a pretty strong legal case if he wants one. Um, As we said earlier, Mm -hmm. dressing in men's clothing is a violation of the law. And the law is pretty clear that this is considered an equal violation. Male and female cross-dressing are both illegal. 
And we should also say that given that this culture is preoccupied with masculine identity, it's likely that the damage to Thorvald's reputation would be worse than what Auth would suffer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, we see, I, I wouldn't call it a greater tolerance for manly women than for womanly men. Actually, maybe I would call it that. I have to think about that. Maybe what we're seeing in the sagas is just less interest in the nuances of gender nonconforming women than men. Hmm. I mean, that would fit with the saga's generally male-centered thinking, wouldn't it? But on the, on the other hand, there's actually some respect in this saga and others for women who take on masculinized roles for reasons of honor or social duty, like we've seen mm-hmm. in you know all the examples we just cited. Owl is not alone in this saga. I mean, Thorbjorg the Stout has already been mentioned, and I can't think of any saga where she's not respected for her active role in running what is technically her husband's chieftaincy. She's known for taking on masculine roles and doing it well. Right. I agree with this. I think we're slowly working our way around to Carol Clover's one gender model for understanding the sagas. Hmm. That is, yeah, I think we've mentioned this on the podcast before. Oh, we must have. But uh, worth rehashing here. Uh, briefly, Clover put forward the argument, I think it was in the early 90s or somewhere about there, that this literature treats gender identity as linked to a set of criteria for a successful person. Um, so we're talking about personhood here. And most mm-hmm. of the qualities of the successful gender are going to be male-associated, but they aren't, ex- they aren't solely achieved by men and definitely aren't achieved by all men. And some women excel within those criteria as well. Right. I don't think we've mentioned it before, but Clover then took those ideas into the study of film and wrote some very influential essays about the structure of modern slasher flicks. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we did talk about this. But uh, anyway, she coined Mm. the term the final girl to describe the POV character, nearly always a woman who's left to confront the killer and survive as the witness to the events of the film, the the Nancys of the uh, um, uh, Nightmare on Elm Streets, you know. Right, right. Yeah, the Nancy Thompson or the uh, whatever Nev Campbell's character in uh, Scream Scream is. Right. Um, Yeah, it's and it is worth noting that that figure, the final girl, uh, usually is the one who has chosen not to act sexually or uh, in other ways to indulge physically during the course of the movie, right? This well, is how doesn't, yeah. the character sort of earns that role of being the survivor. You're reinforcing society's expectations for a young woman. Right, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, Clover's work is part of a much, much bigger field of gender studies. Uh, if, if folks are interested in this field, there are a number of really foundational texts in both gender studies and medieval studies that are worth reading, uh, from Judith Butler's Gender Trouble to, well, to, to Carol Clover's article Regardless of Gender, to the recent post-medieval issue on intersex figures in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. And a number of scholars, uh, Judith Bennett and Christina Wade and Gareth Lloyd Evans are coming to mind at the moment, but there are plenty of others as well. Uh, These scholars have made the point that there is no one essentializing definition of gender across medieval Europe. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there's, again, a lot of other scholars mm-hmm. that you could look at. Uh, Johanna Friedrich's daughter, um, Jetty Jawkins, um, many, many yep. more. Um, yep. But yeah. Yeah, I think it seems like an obvious point, but um, it's so easy to start thinking that nuance is a luxury of the modern world. Um, it's not. Exactly. No, there's, there's a huge amount of really interesting work being done on sexuality and gender identity in the medieval world. It's we, we don't have a time for a survey of it all right now. It'd probably make for a very long saga brief there if we is. ever tackled it. But for now, we can take it as read that Alves' alleged gender bending might have drawn audience interest in the 13th century, 
but not necessarily for the reasons we assume. Right. Uh, of course, like we said before, I don't know that she's actually gender bending at all, but she does, mm-hmm. in fact, gender bend. I said alleged. I said alleged. That's right. But I think it's worth noting <laughs> that uh, what's tantalizing about her is the fact that she does dress as a man when she mm-hmm. is taking on the masculine role of avenging herself, avenging this, the dishonor to her, uh, taking matters into right. her own hands and wielding right. a sword. It's, but it's, I like that note. That note, the idea that there's sort of a wink to the way she chooses to dress on that occasion, yeah. right? It's, yeah. um, you, you accuse me of this. Well, now see what happens when I behave this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think uh, Johanna Friedrich's daughter uh, talks about this scene, um, the, the, the weapon-wielding woman in um, her book Valkyrie. And mm-hmm. mentions that uh, this particular scene is is pretty typical of Laxdala Saga because Laxdala Saga is so interested in exploring the boundaries between the male and the female, um, exploring the gray areas between those two lines. So, of course, we have mm-hmm. an example of a woman uh, taking on a masculine role, wearing masculine clothes, uh, carrying a sword and attacking and avenging uh, um, uh, a dishonor. Uh, really fascinating right. stuff. Not necessarily representative of reality, uh, which she uh, acknowledges in in the discussion of this scene, but uh, but a fascinating literary uh, motif. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, that one ended up swinging wide. I think it was an interesting conversation. There's obviously a lot more to say there, and we probably messed a couple of things up along the way. But uh, yeah, I'm sure that's how it goes. Uh, it was worth the yeah. trip. I enjoyed it. Are we uh, ready to wrap up, John? That's all for tonight. I got to get some sleep. Yeah. Yeah. I got to write some quizzes and some homeworks and and all that stuff. So, uh, all right, sleepyhead. Uh, We're going to be back with another episode (laughs) at some point in the near future. But in the meantime, let us know what you think of Lax Della Saga so far. Uh, What did we get right? How did we screw up tonight? And uh, what did we miss? (laughs) We've got a lot of things to talk about. What did we cover in unnecessarily excruciating detail? Well, that too, yeah. Um, you can reach out to us on email, where we are talking podcast at gmail.com or on all the usual social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Saga Thing Podcast. And you can also follow us and drop us a line on Twitter, where we are Saga Thing Pod. Um, we're also on uh, Discord. Um, I'll have to post mm-hmm. that again um, because uh, that link needs to be posted more often. Yep. Yeah, get involved in the conversation over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can try dreaming about sending a message to us. It won't actually happen, but it'll be narratively similar. Maybe you'll bump into a guy named Guest at a at a hot spring or a bathhouse <laughs> and uh, get in there with him and tell him your dreams and maybe he'll carry the message to us. Yes. If you, if you find a strange man in a hot spring, get in there with him and tell him your dreams. <laughs> that seems like good advice. <laughs> or a bathhouse. Hey. Either way, I'm sure it'll go over well. All right, uh, we're going to return soon with the story of the Hebridean sorcerers. And finally, the shifting of the narrative to the next generation. We'll say goodbye to Olaf Peacock and hello to Kjartan and Botli. Um, mm-hmm. We might even see some killings. Quite a few killings. Mm-hmm. Until then, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. No, 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 no. You're boy. You are. I just, wasn't trying to be inappropriate there. I was just trying to poke fun at the. Uh, it's the way you said it. <laughs> oh, you sensed a little filth in there, didn't you? Well, everything I say has a little whiff of poo in it, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs>